trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Thanks again for joining us. I'm going to make it so worth your while. Because, uh, as, as you may know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on, right? Somebody made the comment the other day, uh, Oh, great, we turned the calendar page. Welcome to level 9 of Jumanji. And it really feels that way in so many ways. But the stuff that has our attention, okay, the burning buildings, shootings in the street, violence, elections, and so forth, may not be some of the most important stuff that we should be focusing our attention on. And my guest is going to talk to us a little bit about something that's been happening, uh, maybe not in the shadows, but quietly enough that there aren't that many people aware of it. Alexander Salter is an economics professor at the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. And Alex, I am glad to have you on the program today. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Now, you are a contributor to Young Voices, but you're also an economics professor. And I know last week... There was an announcement made by Fed Chairman uh, Jerome Powell about uh, about uh, inflation, and and I I think I'm up on the news, but I saw nothing in my news feed about this. What was what was the gist of the announcement, and and why should more of us be paying attention to it? Sure, great place to start. So market participants had long expected Jerome Powell to confirm that the Fed is changing how it handles this inflation target. Back when Janet Yellen was chairwoman of the Fed in 2012, the Fed adopted a 2% inflation target. That basically meant that they were going to conduct monetary policy such that inflation was about 2% in the short run. But then they persistently undershot it. They failed to hit their 2% inflation target for about a decade. So in practice, what markets took away from it is, well, when the Fed says they want inflation to be 2%, what they really mean is they don't want it to be any higher than 2%. So in the short run, the asymmetry and expectations between what markets are thinking the Fed is going to do and what the Fed is thinking it's going to do can result in some kind of nasty outcomes. So to clear up any misunderstanding and hopefully to get the Fed a little bit of credibility, Jerome Powell, the current chairman of the Federal Reserve, gave a speech where he said, what we're going to do is we're going to move to an average inflation target. We still want inflation to average about 2% in the long run. But if we're leaving a period where inflation was significantly below 2%, we're going to want inflation to run a little bit above 2%. Basically, the Fed is telling markets that they want markets to play catch-up. And so previously, where markets had thought that the Fed would not allow inflation to rise above 2% in any circumstance, now Jerome Powell seems to be saying to markets, no, we are going to tolerate higher inflation. We're still going to strike for our long-run average. But if we've been too low before, we're going to go too high, quote unquote, afterwards to sort of balance it out. Okay, so for the average person who probably spends uh, maybe not as much time around the dinner table talking about uh, inflation rates and, you know, is the Fed doing its part to keep inflation in check? How is what how are we going to see that higher inflation that they're tolerating in our lives? What what's going to be our first clue that ooh something has changed? So the standard answer, of course, is if the Fed does what it wants to set out to achieve, if you would expect inflation to run a little bit above 2% in the not-too-distant future, cost of living is going to go up. As a consequence of them expanding the money supply, doing more expansionary monetary policy, 
to try and support markets as we try and get over the last of this uh, unfortunate financial turmoil that's caused by the lingering coronavirus. Now, that's actually a big if in my book, because you remember the Fed has been trying to get inflation to 2% for almost 10 years, and they haven't done it, which means in the eyes of businesses and households and financial traders, the Fed doesn't have a lot of credibility right now. That's what Powell wanted to build up with his address, try and get the Fed a little bit more credibility. It still remains to be seen whether markets trust that the Fed can actually create that inflation. After Powell's announcement, it's now been about six days, inflation expectations rose slightly, meaning we can tell from the financial assets what prices they're trading in the market, what the market anticipates inflation to be over the next five to 10 years. It went up a little bit, but then starting the day before yesterday, it started falling again. So we're still not at 2%. We're still at about 1.71 to 1.73% annual inflation over the next five to 10 years. Granted, it's early. It's not even been a full week since Powell gave his speech. But right now, it seems like markets don't believe him. Interesting. Is is that uh, skepticism uh, for reasons other than, you know, uh, Powell is is a particular, you know, chairman of the Fed? Who, has, has he won the trust of, of the people? I mean, does, does the Fed, cha- Fed chairman automatically get that trust just by being in that position? Or do they have to prove themselves? Do they have to have a track record of being right, I guess is what I'm asking. It's important for Fed chairs to be trustworthy, and it's important for the Fed as an institution to be trustworthy. And so I think Jerome Powell is a serious guy. He doesn't have academic credentials in monetary policy the way recent Fed chairs have have had. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. What I think the problem with the Fed right now is not with the Fed chair. I think it's with the Fed institutions, the rules of the game for how the Fed makes decisions. I think markets think that on the Federal Open Market Committee or other decision makers at the Fed, there are just inflation hawks. And when push comes to shove, they might not be willing to actually tolerate the higher levels of inflation that uh, Chairman Powell seems to want to communicate that the Fed is going to permit. So I think that behind the scenes, there's still a lot going on, even though on paper there was unanimous support for this movement, for this embrace of the average inflation target. I think markets have good reason to be skeptical. Going back even to the last crisis, the 2007 to 2008 financial crisis, the Fed dropped the ball on a lot of ways in responding to that crisis. In this crisis, the Fed also dropped the ball in a lot of ways in terms of targeting their outcomes to make sure that markets got the most liquidity possible to help them get through it. And so I think that right now the Fed has to earn back the trust of markets in order for them to find this announcement credible. Interesting. Um, given given the whole nature of, uh, of, the, uh, of fiat currency and fractional reserve banking, um, is there any possibility with with all the things that are going on, all the turmoil, whether the election or the pandemic or any of the the after effects that have come from from the pandemic, that we will see a shift in monetary policy away from that fractional reserve system and particularly away from uh, the, the fiat currency that we've had now for, you know, for over 100 years. I really don't think so. Um, I don't think that there's any inherent connection between central banking strategy and fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking has been around as long as there've been bank, there's been banking. Banking means financial intermediation, which means borrowing short and lending long. So I don't think that fractional reserve banking is inherently bad or destabilizing. It seems to be a relatively good way of making sure that we allocate scarce capital effectively. The second part of your question having to do with fiat currency, uh, there does seem to be some interest in maybe exploring alternative ways of conducting monetary policy. Uh, in 2016, the Republican Party put an interest in exploring the gold standard onto their official party platform. 
And since that platform has not been updated, I think we can at least assume that they are still interested in exploring that. But in terms of practical politics, no, I really don't think it's happening. In order to go back on a commodity money system, the gold standard, any alternative monetary system, it's not enough for the Fed to just say, hey, we want to do this. That requires an act of Congress. And there's no viable political coalition for gold. So I think it's a political non-starter. We don't have to worry about that. I don't think we have to worry about that in the next 20 years. Well, and the, the reason I ask, and it's it's because I, I personally would, would love to see something shift is just the the system as it currently is constituted seems to give Congress a, a blank check to do a lot more spending, um, you know, because they they can just borrow what what they want to to spend, and it, it seems like there's not the accountability. And and I'm keeping it very simple because I'm just a layman, but I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, the the amount of spending, especially you know the the uh, the trillions of stimulus dollars that have been sent out in the wake of this pandemic. Is that sustainable, or is, is some kind of change going to be forced because it just can't go on as it is? I think that we're in a precarious budget situation right now, and largely that's because of how much spending the Congress was doing, not in response to the coronavirus, but ever since the recovery from the last financial crisis. For many, many years, the economy was operating at full employment and growing reasonably well. According to standard textbook public finance, that's when you want to start paying down deficits. That's when you want to start accumulating a surplus. Not a huge one, but just a modest one. So you can sort of get the debt under control. It's when the economy is doing well that the Congress should be able to tighten its belt a little bit, precisely because it's hard to tighten your belt in an emergency when you're in a recession, when it's a global pandemic. That's arguably when Congress needs to spend the most. So because we didn't do the hard work of being fiscally responsible from 2013 to 2020, about that time period, it's really, really hard to engage in the extreme fiscal measures that we want to do now without worrying whether uh, bond markets can continue to support this level of debt. Now, that being said, the counter argument would be, hey, interest rates are very, very low right now. So clearly, bond markets are okay with all this debt. Otherwise, the interest that they would demand to loan Uncle Sam money would be higher. So while there's no immediate threat of anything like a sovereign debt crisis or anything like that, I am personally very uncomfortable with the state of fiscal politics in the United States. I don't see any coalition or effort or serious attempt to get fiscal discipline under control. And I think that that's Congress's fault, not the Fed. Okay, we're going to come back and continue our conversation with Alex Salter. This is The Brian Hyde Show. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part by the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as our friends at firesteel.com. My guest is Alex Salter. He is an assistant professor of economics, and we're talking. Alex, I got to tell you, there, there's. I, I realize how quickly I run into the, I bump into the limits of my understanding of economics, and uh, when I talk to someone like you who teaches this for a living, but I'm grateful that I have the chance to pick your brain about this because I, I have long believed that the the financial and the monetary situation that we're in is uh, it's unsustainable. From a from a borrowing and spending standpoint, on the part of the government, I also believe that uh, that our, our our currency 
which if I if I'm understanding correctly, has been um, devalued or has been uh, basically has lost 95 or so percent of its purchasing power since, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Um, I wonder how long something like that can go on. Talk to me about what you see on the horizon. If, if uh, like, for instance, move toward a cashless or a digital currency or something like that, is is it feasible? Are there are there upsides to it? Are there downsides to it in, in your estimation? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, so I'll take them in order. I think that we could continue to see slow depreciation in the purchasing power of the dollar for quite some time. So it's true that the dollar has lost about 95% of its purchasing power since the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, but there's a pretty simple reason for that. There's more dollars out there. So if you were choosing between earning a 1913 income and spending it on goods in 1913 prices versus a 2020 income and 2020 prices, holding constant the quality of goods, it's not clear which one you should prefer. Yeah, things are way more expensive, but you also have a lot more dollar bills in your wallet. Obviously, we have things like penicillin and the internet, et cetera, that make uh, 2020 much better than 2013. But if you just wanted to isolate the inflationary aspect of it over the very, very long term, I don't think that the decline in the purchasing power of the dollar is per se ruinous of the financial system. What I'm much more worried about is the second thing you discussed. So the Fed has been uh, conducting initial discussions about constructing a digital dollar. You frequently have Federal Reserve insiders advocating what might be called a cashless society, society, getting rid of cash. And it's very obvious why central bankers would want to get rid of cash. When you deal in cash, you're dealing in money that's outside of the banking system, which means that the Federal Reserve and the various branches of government have very little control over those transactions. If you get rid of cash and make everything digital, then suddenly everything is legible for the purposes of taxing and spending and also for conducting monetary policy. So there are two serious considerations here that I don't think that cashless advocates have adequately wrestled with. One, privacy. Cash is a defense of privacy. And frequently, that's why cashless advocates don't like cash. They say things like, oh, only drug dealers deal in cash. Oh, only criminal cash. And that's reductionist and wrong. There are all sorts of good reasons why you should deal and can deal in cash. But ultimately, it's not my responsibility to justify to you how I want to settle my liabilities. Frankly, sir, Mr. Central Banker, that's none of your business. Uh, Secondly, I think it's also worth considering that a lot of times when we talk about moving to a digital currency, we don't realize that that's going to be detrimental to people who are excluded from the traditional financial system, the unbanked, people of more modest means and lower income who simply might not have access to the institutions that create these digital deposits and digital monies. So I find it a violation of rights of privacy, and I I find it a violation of the rights of the low income. And for both of those reasons, I am very against this idea of mandatory digitization and getting rid of uh, cash payments. I think that that's largely a bad idea and that people should strongly push back against that. Okay, and I'm with you on that. I I have further concerns that uh, if we lose that privacy, you know, um, I, I think China's system of, you know, social credit could be brought to bear in places that, that aren't as openly, you know, authoritarian as China. Simply, uh, you know, you may find your credit rating slashed because you hold unpopular opinions or that kind of thing. I mean, in the worst case scenario, uh, you become an unperson of sorts. Maybe it's, it's, you know, hard to get a job or it's hard to buy groceries, things like that. But that's, you know, th- that's my imagination running ahead to where could it possibly lead, which... Uh, 
you know, some of the better economists that, that, I, that I've studied in my life, including Bastiat and including uh, Hazlitt, have always said, try to think of the unintended consequences or think of the things that may come up that, uh, that weren't the immediate uh, predicted effect of a, of a given policy. Is there anything hopeful on your radar screen uh, for, for what you see lying ahead in either the next few months or the next couple of years? There's a lot of turmoil, and I know that's brought out the pessimist in a lot of folks. Is there any good news that we should be noticing as well? On the central banking side, I think we're just sort of holding our breath. We're coming up to the edge of the cliff, and we're waiting to see whether we're going to peer over the edge, and hopefully we don't come tumbling down. I don't think that the Fed is going to lose control over inflation. My biggest worry is that the Fed has so little credibility in markets that financial traders are just not going to take much account of the Fed's new inflation target. And that's going to mean that the Fed is going to have a harder time conducting monetary policy to sort of soften the remaining malaise that remains due to the COVID pandemic. So I'm, I'm very much a Fed skeptic, both in the short run and the long run, but I want them to do well. And I want them to do well because when monetary policy is working well, and we're more or less operating at a full employment economy, that's, that's welfare for people. I shouldn't say welfare like a welfare program, but well-being is a better term. That means people are working. They have jobs. They have money to take care of their families. Monetary policy absolutely matters in making this better. Uh, again, I'm just a little skeptical that given the various failures over the entire past decade, the Fed has repeatedly, again, dropped the ball from the 2007 crisis to now. I think they have some ground to make up. And I think that they've got to earn markets trust back a little bit before they can find themselves in the position of doing the hard work to steward the macro economy for all our sakes. And that was the next thing I wanted to ask you was, what would it take? How can they earn that that trust back? If the trust is waning, what to, what would we need to see happen for people to say, okay, I, I feel like I can trust these guys again? Great question. I think the first thing they need to do is they need to retire some of their emergency programs in response to the COVID crisis as soon as possible. Monetary policy is supposed to be about giving the markets liquidity. What the Fed has done a lot of since the crisis started is embraced fiscal policy. They're actively allocating credits and, uh, credit and resources. That's supposed to be Congress's job, not the Fed's job. The Fed is supposed to be concerned with liquidity, not credit allocation. But since the crisis started, they've undertaken all these emergency programs that allocate credit to small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large corporations. They've bought the bonds of the Coca-Cola company and Warren Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett's company, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Those are not exactly struggling firms, if you know what I mean. Right. And of course, they're loaning to state and municipal governments. This is completely beyond the pale in terms of what we want monetary policy to, to do. It's true that the total size of these programs is small, so it's not a large fraction of the assets the Fed has on its books. It's the precedent that's worrying. The Fed is apparently deciding that it's going to do Congress's job for it. And I think that that's a weakening of its mandate, and it distracts them from what's really important. So for markets to take the Fed seriously, they first need to retire their programs. They weren't helpful. They weren't needed then. They're not needed now. And I would like to see the Fed normalize its monetary policy framework more generally basically conduct monetary policy like we did in the years uh, even before the 2007 to 2008 crisis. I think the last time that we had a Fed that was operating more or less responsibly was under Alan Greenspan, with whom I have many problems. But I think that the operating framework where the Fed would simply buy and sell assets and affect macroeconomic variables directly makes more sense than tinkering with interest rates and paying interest on excess reserves, all the experiments that they're doing now that frankly don't don't work very well and distract from what they're ultimately trying to do. 
sounds like Congress maybe needs a kick in the seat of the pants to stand up and do their job rather than hand Congress it off. Congress always needs a kicking in the seat of the pants. Always. Alex, where can people find more of your work? Tell us online where they can go to, to learn more about you. Sure. I have all of my writings, both my academic writings and my popular op-eds at my website, www.awsalter.com. I also have a Twitter account, at Alex W. Salter, so you can find me in either of those places. And of course, I'm happy to answer questions over email as well. So please reach out if you have any questions. I'd love to hear from you. Alex, thanks for letting me pick your brain today. Thanks, Brian. It was great. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show and a special shout out to our our growing audience across a number of different platforms, whether it be the Loving Liberty Radio Network, Liberty News Radio. What else? Talk Stream Live. K Talk 1640, uh, my friends on KDXU in southern Utah, and, uh, and any of the uh, two dozen or so podcast platforms on which you can now subscribe to this program. If you are interested in becoming a subscriber or maybe even a supporter, just uh, drop by, check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. In fact, you don't even have to go to the show notes if you don't want to. You can join up and be a wrong thinker and help support us. And you can also access all the different articles and different things that I come across in the course of a day's show prep. There's a lot of good stuff. I never have time to get to all of it. I try to save just the best of the best of the best, sir, for whatever I can, can fit in during the, uh, the two hours that are actually recorded and produced for podcast. So tell me this. When, uh, when you see a fact checker feature pop up on Facebook. What's your immediate response? I mean, once in a while, I find a great story and I'm like, ooh, that's that's pretty good. I, I think I want to share that. And I'll share it or else I'll see somebody else has shared something and I'm like, well, that looks like a relevant article. And, and then suddenly there's this thing, you know, independent experts say this is not entirely true. By the way, the Babylon Bee did a really great deconstruction of how some of this fact-checking works. Uh, and I think one of the things they took was... Uh, Presidential candidate Joe Biden says two plus two equals five. And, of course, the independent fact checker said, well, factually, he was correct in that uh, he was engaging in a numerical operation in which adding one number to another number creates a different higher sum of the two numbers. And that's pretty much where they leave it. And it's, it's indicative, or indicative of the, uh, the spin that we see. But I'll tell you, just flat up, I, for one, resent it. And it's not because I have all the answers. I, I don't know it all. But just the idea that there's somebody who's sitting there watching for me and who's going to tell me, well, you can believe this and you shouldn't believe that, it ticks me off. I mean, I, I appreciate their concern. Thank you. That's, that's very, very kind. But sometimes I just want to engage in wrong think. Meaning, I want to step outside of the official narrative and see what else there is to consider. 
And I don't need somebody steering my thinking in the direction they think it should go. And, and you know, just for the record, I have a lot of friends and I have even I have a lot of critics who will listen to me. And if I make a mistake, they will point it out. And the thing I love about the fact that they'll point it out is they also point it out by sharing a clarifying truth rather than mangling it to fit a particular political agenda. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Yeah, I think when you get some of those responses from that, I think you're kind of stifling their agenda. That's kind of what I feel. Most of the time, the fact checks are usually stuff that is put out there on a conservative view. And then it seems like they're trying to, you know, prove you wrong on their liberal ideology. That's kind of what I gather. No, I never I- really see I see it, too. And in fact, that's that's the thing that I resent is the idea that I need somebody hovering over my shoulder like a helicopter parent. Oh, no, 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 no. You strayed from the three by five index card of approved opinion. Political correctness. Yeah. I mean, political correctness was put in place for one reason and one reason only. So that you couldn't call them a bad person for them lining their pockets on your nickel. Period. Well, it's it's very clear that there are those who really feel that it is their duty uh, not just to tell us what to think, but to make sure that uh, we are not given the opportunity to think something else just in case we encounter something that would, um, I don't know, make more sense than what we're supposed to believe. I mean, the thing I had to fact check on, and actually they t- pulled it off on Facebook, and I Facebook very long. I just got on it in about December of last year, and uh, was the masks. Oh, yeah. Oh, I said, I said they don't work. They don't do anything. I mean, think about it, Brian. Here we, here we are. We're, we're, we're all walking around Lowe's hardware store. Here, here's a prime example. We're going into Lowe's, right? We got to wear a mask. Now, does merchandise go in that store, leave the shopping store, go home with somebody, and come back in on, on a return? How do you know COVID-19, if there is a COVID-19, which I still don't believe there is, is all over that merchandise that you're bringing back in the store? Ah, interesting. And, people, and they're worried about masks. Think about it. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be as small as a pinhead, this uh, thing that we're supposedly fighting here. So, yeah, I, I just, it is. It's, well, you just got to keep up the fight, just like you're doing every day on the radio. Rob, I appreciate your call. Thank you. I, I actually have a great article here. I'm going to share a couple of excerpts from this. This is from James D. Agresti, and I found this on intellectualtakeout.org. Beware of the fact checkers. And what I love is in this article, he, he gives some very specific examples of times that the fact checkers got caught fudging the truth. Now, he starts by noting that we live in an age in which information is far more accessible than ever before. However, so is misinformation. And, and I can't think of any reasonable person who would disagree, right? Of course it is. But how can we sort out one from the other? 
James Agresti says, well, some people who call themselves fact checkers claim to have the answer. They say, trust us. But all too often, they fail to get even the basic facts correct. So he says, let's look at three prime examples. See if you notice a common thread between them. And he starts with Snopes. Yes, this was the Trump card, so to speak, that that uh, so many people would pull. Well, have you checked this on Snopes? He says, late during the Supreme Court nominations for Brett Kavanaugh, several women accused him of sexual assault. And the media began punish- publishing many facts about such crimes. Now, these supposedly showed that only a tiny portion of sexual assault allegations are false, which was meant to give the clear message that Kavanaugh's accusers were probably telling the truth. Now, that's when a fact checker called Snopes stepped in and reported the most recent incredible research on this topic suggests that around 5% of rape or sexual assault allegations are false. Snopes writer Alex Alex, uh, Kasprak based this claim mainly on a meta-analysis of seven studies. However, the meta-analysis doesn't say this. Instead, it states that at least 5% of such accusations are confirmed false reports and potentially many more false case reports exist. In fact, the meta-analysis lists four different studies of suspected false allegations and found false reporting rates above 40%. Now, James Agresti says, Surely Snopes knows that the words at least 5% and potentially many more don't mean around 5%. But if that wasn't enough, the same Snopes article slanders Mississippi State Senator Chris McDaniel by claiming he said that 99% of rape allegations from women are false. McDaniel didn't say that. He was speaking about accusations dredged up by the American left at politically opportune times many years after the alleged incidents occurred. So he wasn't talking about all sexual assault cases, and no competent, honest journalist could twist his words in the manner that Snopes did. Here's another one. PolitiFact. In the final presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Clinton said that half of all illegal immigrants in the U.S. actually pay federal income tax. Now, a Pulitzer Prize-winning fact-check organization named PolitiFact looked into Clinton's claim and reported, while there is no official figure, experts estimate that about half of all undocumented workers pay federal income taxes, if not more. In reality, the polar opposite is true. Data from the IRS, the Social Security Administration, and the Congressional Budget Office show that roughly half of illegal immigrants file federal tax returns, but virtually none of them pay federal income taxes. Instead, they file these returns to claim refundable child tax credits, which give them cash welfare payments for every child they have. So are we supposed to believe that PolitiFact doesn't understand that paying income taxes is not the same as filing income tax or tax returns, rather, to get welfare. Now there's another example, but I'm going to have to wait for a minute because we are coming up fast on the break. Have you picked up the common thread just yet? If not, I can guarantee by the time we get through this third example, you should start to see the pattern that James D. Agresti has zeroed in on. I think he's absolutely right to warn us to beware the fact checkers. We'll come back to this story just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can contact my friend John Staples or his lovely wife, Heather, and get the answers you need regarding a uh, home loan, regarding a refinance of your existing home loan, and keep in mind that they have tons of experience and uh, an organization that is 23 states strong when it comes to meeting your needs. Just go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. And when you talk to them, it would, it would mean a lot to me if you would just mention, hey, the whole reason I'm checking you out or the whole reason I'm talking to you is because Brian said you guys are the best. And by the way, I'm not exaggerating. They really are. I've known John for a long, long time. He is one of my most trusted friends. That means a lot to me. And so I'm very happy to, to introduce you to him. And I will tell you that you will not be disappointed if you utilize his services, assuming you are in the market for either a new home loan or a refinance. So we're talking about beware the fact checkers. Given a couple of examples, PolitiFact, Snopes. Let's next talk about the Washington Post. James Agresti has this article on intellectual takeout. He says, let's examine a fact-checking operation embedded in a media outlet. Well after Obamacare was signed into law, the Congressional Budget Office estimated it would reduce the size of the U.S. workforce by about 2.3 million full-time workers. That was roughly three times larger than the previous estimate. Now, as this negative news spread, the Washington Post head fact-checker, Glenn Kessler, put a positive spin on it by claiming this decline in workers initially would lead to higher wages as employers competed to hire people. In direct contradiction to this, the same Congressional Budget Office report that Kessler cited says the Affordable Care Act will cause reductions in wages or other compensation. Moreover, it explains that these wage reductions are the main are among the main reasons why Obamacare will cause the workforce to decline. Since Obamacare cuts the money that people earn from working, less people will be willing to work. Now, even a child can read a report that says wages will decline and know that it doesn't mean wages will rise. And James Agresti asks, why can't the Washington Post's head fact checker or his editor do that? Now, this is the same media outlet that ran a Super Bowl ad praising journalists for empowering the public, helping us make good decisions and keeping us free. The conclusion is this. These cases are all clear as a bell and inexcusable under basic standards of honesty. And James Agresti says, worse still, when I brought these blatant falsehoods to the attention of these so-called fact checkers, not one of them made a correction. So what's the common thread here? They all mislead in ways that support progressive political agendas. That's not a coincidence. He says, I've examined countless fact checks that are rife with deceit. In nearly every case, it's the same story. They mangle the truth in ways that advance leftist narratives. Why would they do this? He says, I can't uh, read their minds, but this can only boil down to two factors, either incompetence or dishonesty. Maybe two of them working together. I don't know. Interesting article. I'll have it in the show notes. Check them out at thebrianhydeshow.com. And please subscribe to the podcast while you're looking at it. Two other quick stories that I wanted to share with you. This was a good one. This is a little bit older. It was written last year. John Miltimore, a marvelous writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a piece on why fewer young people are working and why that's a problem. 
I know people are oh, the young kids, they don't know how to work and get a haircut and fly straight and the world would be a better place. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about policies that make it more difficult to land that first job. And John starts by talking about his first full-time job. In the summer of 1995, he says it was seasonable, seasonal work rather at Lake Arrowhead, a golf course about 20 minutes from his parents' house. In fact, he couldn't even legally drive yet. He was only 15. But a friend who had, off, who had applied offered to drive both of us if we got hired, and he says we did. So that summer, he says, I worked 40 hours a week mowing lawns, repairing cart paths, and changing hole locations before sunrise. I was paid $5 an hour, 75 cents more than the federal minimum wage at the time, and I was allowed to golf for free. Now, he says, I'm tempted to write how lucky I felt to have that job, but he says, to be honest, I don't think I felt lucky at the time. Waking up at 5 a.m. is not a blast, especially for a growing 15-year-old. And nine-hour days begin to feel pretty long after a few weeks. To make matters worse, he says, In my second week on the job, I crashed a $40,000 riding mower into a tree and bent the deck. And he said, I was sure I was going to be fired, but I must have appeared sufficiently contrite because they didn't sack me. As for free golfing, I could barely enjoy it, partly because I was often too pooped to walk nine holes after work, and partly because I was a pretty lousy golfer at the time. Now, here's the key. He says, looking back on things today, however, I can see everything that I took from that job. I learned how to wake up early, punch a time clock on time, and drive a stick shift. I operated light machinery and received a crash course in landscaping and horticulture and learned how to take orders and execute directions. He says, at the same time, I took home a couple thousand dollars after taxes, improved my slice, and scavenged a few hundred golf balls from errant tee shots. Confession, sometimes we'd hunt for golf balls in the woods in between weed whipping. But he says, I bring up my first job for a reason. Government data show that fewer and fewer young Americans are getting something important, job experience. The trend of fewer young people in the labor force, that's something we should be paying attention to. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics released data projecting that the labor participation rate of people 16 to 24 would drop from 55.2% to 51.7% over the next decade. Now, again, this, was, this article was written a year ago. But uh, keep in mind what he's sharing here, because I believe that trend uh, may actually be, that drop might even be a little bit more at this point. A decade ago, the labor participation rate, basically the sum of employed workers divided by the working age population of this demographic, was 58.8%. A decade before that, it was 66%. So to put this projection into perspective, a decade from now, the labor participation rate of young people will barely be higher than the period following the Great Recession, when the employment rate for younger people briefly fell below 50%. It dropped to 48.8%, an historic low. Now, there are various factors behind this labor trend, and not all of them are necessarily bad. A recent report published by the Brookings Institute states that the trend is primarily driven by an increase in school enrollment and time spent on education-related activities. Now, that would suggest, in contrast to the stereotype of lazy young people who just want to play video games, that many young people are simply choosing to invest more in their own human capital. And this is not the only factor driving down youth unemployment, however. He says the BLS report cites displaced opportunities as another, as older workers fill jobs historically held by younger workers. Indeed, BLS data showed the labor participation rate of each of America's three oldest demographics, 55 to 64, 65 to 74, and 75 and older, 
increasing over the next decade. Now, he spoke to economist Anthony Davies and said he said the first two he said the two policies in particular contribute to this generational employment shift. First, the Federal Reserve's low interest rates, while good news for borrowers, have reduced retirees' interest income to the point that many have been forced to re-enter the workforce. Second, rising minimum wages make it more expensive for employers to take on to take risks on young, untried employees. Davies said if one wanted deliberately to enact policies aimed at shutting young workers out of entry-level jobs and replacing them with former retirees, these two policies would be at the top of the list. So in an era that places education on a pedestal, John Miltimore says it's easy to forget the value of work. But he says it's important to remember that jobs, especially a first job, are a lot more than a paycheck. That first job can mean a connection to a lifelong mentor, the ability to envision a career path, a boost in self-confidence, an appreciation for the value of education, an off-ramp from life on the streets, a belief that you can be something. By the way, these words were written by Daniel Gray and Bethany Henderson, two Obama administration officials who worked on youth job initiatives. And John Miltimore says this is one more reason that policies that make it more difficult to land that first job should be avoided. He says, I'm fairly certain Lake Arrowhead wouldn't have hired me 25 years ago if they had to pay me 15 bucks an hour to cut grass, change hole locations, and drive around on Cushman's all day getting a suntan. And who could blame them? And he says, the irony here is that I would have been the one losing out. Lake Arrowhead Golf Course would have managed just fine. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Hey, you'll also find links to my great sponsors like firesteel.com. Check out their website. If you haven't seen their amazing fire-starting tools, you probably will. These will take the place of many different books of matches or hundreds and hundreds of cigarette lighters. And with just a little bit of practice, you can start fires reliably with just a single ferrule rod or a sparker or a magnesium fire starter. But wait, here's the best part. You go to their website, firesteel.com. They've got some great videos showing you what they can do. And you decide to make the purchase, you plug in my name, B-R-Y-A-N, and they will take 10% off the cost of your total purchase. Thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.